Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. So in my family, I have something that I love to do, and that's called a twofer. It obviously comes from the theater term, but my wife has adopted it. So for me, like I love going on vacation, but if I get a client to pay for me to go to a rare and exotic place, and then when the tour ends, I'm in that location and I get to fly my wife out, I consider that a twofer. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a very efficient way of doing things that I already want to do, and I... I'm very excited when that gets to happen. So today's one of those days where I am very excited to reach out to my, today's guest and my audience has actually reached out and requested him. They want to hear what, what he has to say and some of his unique philosophies. Today's a bit of a twofer. Uh, I'm very excited about that because, you know, I get to the best of both worlds. I get to make everybody happy and that's, and that's rare. So I hope you guys will all uh, welcome Bob Peterson. He is the owner and lighting designer at Real World Lighting out of Chicago. Thank you so much for joining me today, Bob. I appreciate it. Happy to uh, be here. There's a little bit of snow going outside. Uh, I think we're at 21 hours and nine minutes till there's a new president. Uh, so a little anxious today about uh, getting that 21 hours behind my belt. So what a better way to do it than to talk with somebody such as you. <laughs> I do love watching you and Nook being able to go online every once in a while and just kind of just help fact check some people. You're like, no, I've, I've actually done a little bit of research on this. I actually know what I'm talking about and everybody should just chill out. This is going to be just fine. Uh, yeah, that's been a, been a thing. The, um, uh, boy, right to the politics, just right away. <laughs> um, the, the, the lack of accountability that has shown up in our society uh, is just uh, astounding. And I think it's at the roots of, of just about everything that's uh, transpired over these uh, many years now. And um, so, yeah, I, I feel if, if uh, there's, there's an error there, I'm going to try to uh, set it straight. So that actually is a, as a perfect leader without going too deep into the political rabbit hole, which I'm sure you and I could go for hours and I'm sure we'll get back to it. But that kind of ties into one of the things that my audience wanted to ask you about. So you have been in the industry long enough that you've seen the progression from the, the, the angry, grumpy pirate roadies and the, the rock stars chucking televisions out the hotels to kind of the, I, we've progressed a bit. And, and I say that in the, in the most polite way, we've gone from being the grumpy, angry, grizzled roadies 
to technicians and professionals. And this is not just something that we do as a summer job to, to hand out backstage passes, but this is a, a profession now that we all have to be polite and we have to be a little bit more kinder and a little more gentler to each other because we're going to be spending five months at a time together. So you're probably one of the best examples of that where everybody that I talk to you says what a gentle, wonderful human being and a pleasure to work with as opposed to some of the people that I've worked with in the past who didn't treat me the same way. Is that part of your brand? I, I think it's just the way that I've had more success or uh, I do know that, that I always appreciated um, uh, good feedback when I was growing up. Uh, it came from a bit of a narcissistic household. So attention was, was hard to get sometimes. Um, uh, and I just always had better luck uh, having people be on the, the boat paddling with me than, than throwing them off and trying to do it myself. So it's uh, your, your attitude was kind of evolved through positive results. And, and once it got high profile uh, and, uh, with Alan Branton, which is where I got my mentorship, um, couldn't do better than that under any circumstances. We were doing big shows all around the world in, the, in those first four or five years where I started to get involved in television. Um, uh, and he is a no-nonsense guy and um, always just looking for the result and, and no time for uh, niceties, niceties, so to speak, and didn't suffer fools, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, just by nature, um, and I think uh, Monica Rose would speak about me this way on occasion on some of the bigger shows where it gets a little more... Uh, harried, uh, you're left to maintain those relationships and, and, and put them back together, band-aid them and, and find ways to keep everybody pulling on the same rope. So it became, so, it, it, it was a necessity at first, but uh, just uh, fit my personality. Uh, and that's the way we try to do things. The few jobs I've ever done with Alan, they, they turned out spectacular but he is one of those ones who walks that very fine line between a perfectionist and, and difficult to work with. Like, you know that he's not going to stop until he gets exactly what he wants. And sometimes that is, that's how you get exactly what you want. But sometimes the ends don't always justify the means to get there. Well, I, 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 I differ with you in a little bit. Um, I think you can get there, you know, with, with a kinder style, so to speak. But he had a mm -hmm. very, very specific line that he would use. You need to listen to me because when your mom sees this on Tuesday, your way is not going to work. So is that starting okay. to get the point I'm trying to make across? He had a better way of saying it. It's a long way of saying I'm right and you're wrong. Right. Okay. And that can be expressed in a very polite way. And it can also be expressed right, that's in true. a very yeah. negative way. Yeah. There's a lot of way like, yeah, so we, yeah, we tried your the, way. Right. Uh, throw them off the riser is, 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 you know, that's, that's a pretty curt way of doing it. <laughs> Yes, I've seen, I've been witness to a couple people either being thrown off the riser or 
actually just stepping down from the riser voluntarily going like, yeah, I'm not, I don't want to work that way. Right. right. So I, th- I think I'm seeing a lot of that these days where I'm seeing more people would rather work with a person who gets the same results and they're nice to work with. I, I think a lot of people remember how well they were treated and that's what brings them back to working with somebody. Yeah, I, I would uh, certainly agree with that. Um, uh, just the, the, the job site and being around, it just changes everything um, uh, for everybody. We're all pulling on the same rope. A lot of people will even forget what was said to them, but they will always remember how you made them feel. Because if, if at the end of the show, if you feel good about your show, then it's a good show. And if you feel terrible, it doesn't really matter if it's the, the most perfect show. If, if people don't want to return to their show, then, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to suffer. Right. And, and, and that's back to that uh, phrase I was trying to remember exactly how he would say it. But um, uh, truly, when you're all done, you do have your memories, but the, the videotape uh, or the digital file is really the record of, mm-hmm. of what you've gone and done. And that's something that I've always found interesting about uh, this particular niche uh, is that I'll go and spend three to five, seven days on something. And sometimes it's really hard and it's really miserable, whether or <laughs> logistics or just producer changes or uh, whatever. And you leave and then it airs uh, four, six weeks later um, uh, after it's all been done and cut up and edited. And you're like, wow, that was the greatest show ever. It's, it's really like labor pain <laughs> uh, <laughs> times where, um, you know, you get uh, down the road and it's, you want, you want the work to look good. So that actually comes down to what kind of what got us into this industry is our job is to make the audience as a whole, but in, that includes our coworkers we want to make them feel something. And I would imagine that hopefully we make them feel good. Uh, there are the few shows where it's our job to make them feel awkward or uncomfortable, but in general, we want to make the audience feel good. I would imagine that's kind of what brought you into the industry. Yeah, it was just, a, it started out playing hockey in high school and I just had a chance. Uh, Donnie and Corone and I had finished a uh, uh, practice, I think, and he said, hey, you want to come load out sticks at the high school? Uh, And uh, (laughs) uh, we went over and did that, and I never turned back from that point on in in terms of just the excitement of what's going on, the technology. Oh, my God. Uh, We were inventing uh, or at least repurposing and repackaging all sorts of equipment at that time um, uh, on an annual basis, just just constantly moving the bar and uh, making and doing new things. And then when you get to the shows, especially if you're on that board and you, you know, run a few cues up and you know, the crowd is reacting to what you're doing. There's nothing like it. You pushed a few cases for sticks and you were hooked. Yep. Nice. Sometimes that's all it takes. There's something, uh, something pretty wonderful about pushing cases. Just uh, it was it was magic from the the second show I went to I think or third was um, uh, Kiss uh, who was just starting to come into the Chicago area and Paul Chavaria let me uh, chop up the dry ice for him which was really a Tom Sawyer kind of thing but like wow look at this this is fantastic 
Wow, you got to chop up the dry ice for Kiss. Yeah, how about that? Man, and that was that you knew this was going to be your career. You're like, this is it for me. Exactly. (laughs) Next thing you know, there you are at Yankee Stadium sitting behind the console. You're like, I knew it. Now I'm going to have to go tell somebody to chop up some dry ice. Right, exactly. We've come a long way from, from dry. I don't even know if we, I think we still need dry ice. I, I think they do, and then there's a, there you add CO two to it in some fashion um, in a big uh, canister as well, and combine the two, and it really uh, uh, does something. So after sticks, did you work outside of our industry at all? I had uh, well, I worked with my dad. He was an air conditioning and refrigeration uh, uh, supplier. Uh, so I would go and wash the truck for him on Saturdays. Uh, but really, the first uh, job I had separate of that was at Plush Pup in Des Plaines Hot Dog Place, uh, where oh, you, yeah. you would run them true to garden, uh, so to speak. And uh, I worked there mostly in the kitchen, and that didn't last too long. There was a uh, pretty serious disagreement with the boss, and I threw a tomato at him, and that was the end of that. Uh, <laughs> But once to, I think, late sophomore year, um, high school, it was uh, upstaging all the time. Um, okay. Yeah, all the time. We'd, we'd tell my um, dad or Donnie would tell Mr. Carone. Well, Mr. Carone was in on it, but we'd tell our dads that we were uh, going to hockey tournament or, or going to Rockford to play or whatever. And in fact, we're going to St. Louis to put up lights for somebody else. <laughs> just nuts. So you could have done uh, entertainment or you could have been in air conditioner repair. Those were your two. I think I, I was on a track to be a electrical engineer. Okay. So the electronic part of what we were doing was just right in the groove as well. Quite okay. This definitely sounds the like the more exciting side of that coin. Right. You think you chose well? Yep. I was. Uh... Uh, I, I did. I have a story I like to tell. Um, my dad was really angry with me because I, I <clears throat> was a National Merit Scholar and I was supposed to go off to college. And instead, I went on the road with Kiss as the third guy on the lighting crew. Uh, and he's like, uh, "Hey, you know, you go and do that. Uh, it, it's a circus. You'll never come back." And uh, you're deep disappointment. He threw me out of the house. And it wasn't till maybe two or three years later where we got the contract for Chicago Fest and Frank Sinatra played there. And my dad got to go. Uh, at, at that point, he said, hey, Sonny, uh, maybe this is going to work out. So, yeah. <laughs> Wow, a little egg, just a, just a smidgen of egg on his face. Like, okay, maybe, maybe you should have followed your intuition. Good on you. Right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I had a, I had a similar experience when my parents got to come see Elton John. They're like, "Oh, so that's what you do? Got it?" Yeah. Was your dad a big Sinatra fan? Oh, of course. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, I think everybody was then. Right. So, how was that Kiss tour? Was that was that the exactly the the type of tour that my wife thought that touring was up until ten years ago? Was it? It was hard. Um, that tour was hard. Um, we had too much stuff. Uh, the uh, scenic design for that destroyer tour it was um, not well suited for traveling. Uh, we worked really, really hard. 
Um, but fateful for me was that Bob Seeger was the opening act for that tour and he had just released, released a live bullet. Um, and I imagine that uh, uh, Rick Monroe and Donnie had been asked to um, run lights for him and they said no. So it was, uh, I got the third tap from Bob and sat down and uh, so it's 43 years now of, of working with Seeger. So um, it was just a fateful kind of situation um, that opened up. That's the kind of story that movies are made of. That's the sort of thing. I don't know if that still exists. I haven't heard from anybody lately. Oh, I think that I really still happens. Think it does. I, I, I uh, uh, helped do a tour design for Rascal Flats not not too many years ago. You know, I'd say five. It's probably ten or fifteen. And uh, they were in their heyday and uh, got out there. And Taylor Swift was the opening act, and she was just brand new. And a couple of the kids on the tour were offered the opportunity to run her lights and they turned it down. Uh, they wanted their money now and, and this, that. I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Just take it, learn from it at the very least, right? Just use it as a time to show that you have timing and you know how to change colors and right. just show them that you can follow along. And man, that's... That's such an opportunity to pass up. Right. Yeah, exactly. Probably didn't pay well off the bat, but you have to look at the long-term ramifications yeah. there. <laughs> right, exactly. Wow. Now there's I can I can count on 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 two hands the amount of time, the amount of stories like that I've heard in the industry where it it's straight out of like, you know, you showed up that day. And the next thing you know, so you got a tap on the shoulder from uh, Bob Seger, like, hey, you want to go on the road, kid? Like, You're coming with me. Get on the bus. You know, that sort of thing. And that's exactly once once the tour was over with Kiss, uh, that's exactly what happened. Um, and uh, my dad told you so. You're never coming home. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, off we went. And uh, wow, that's just exciting uh, years when it went and somebody's career has just really taken off. He'd been around for a long time prior to that, but uh, uh, the success that he had during that period was just magical. And then I, I would imagine that uh, it's the natural progression. Like, Hey, you're, you know how to run lights. Can you, can you design? And I would imagine you had to sit back and were like, um, yes. Is that, I actually is that felt how it went? I felt more comfortable in the design and technical aspects of it. Uh, quite a what bit of what I did at upstaging for many years was uh, turn people's ideas and visualizations into practicality. Uh, okay. I had a, a wonderful period of working with Leroy Bennett uh, at the beginning of the Prince years and, and, the most talented guy he ever knew, but he didn't necessarily know what the details of the parts and pieces were. So he was able to help him with that for a while. Um, and so the, the design aspect of it was always something I felt more comfortable with, but really from a technical basis. And it, I don't know when it was uh, not, it, it took a long time before I realized that, hey, I'm a pretty decent designer in, in terms of what it actually looks like uh, as well as how it packs up and works and, and all that. You, uh, you had to convince yourself that you were good. Yeah. 
That's tough. A lot of people struggle with that. Right. So it sounds like you started off right at the top. I mean, there's, there's no, uh, there was no bus and trailer tours for you starting from the very beginning. Well, during that, those high school years, of course, in, in the summers, right, we'd, we'd get in the rider trucks and, and, and drive the rider trucks to whatever thing with the gear in the back of it. Uh, interestingly, and this is just a little bit later, but when the police first came through, uh, we did them in, um, at DeKalb and then at the Riviera Theater in Chicago, and they were so spectacular. I got in the truck and I just followed them around uh, for another week, 10 days out east and just showed up, parked the truck in the dock and unloaded it in first thing in the morning. And hey, we're their lighting company. And uh, by three shows of doing that, uh, they actually said, yeah, you are. And, and, and that became a permanent client. But um, just kind of pirate, crazy uh, <laughs> fearlessness. Uh, I have a phrase that I've used for a long time, just always my whole life, I'm not scared even though I am a little bit right now with only 20 hours and 45 minutes left um, prior to the inauguration. Uh, we just, we were just fearless. Okay. How about that? There's no way you could pull that off anymore. There's too much no, not at all. insurance. Uh, we, there's we, too we, much liability. Yeah. In, in Philly, you it just was pull rough. And you're like, I'm the lighting vendor. Right. In Philly, it was rough because the, um, Steward's brother owned the local company and was going to show up later that day. So that was, that was rough. But that's really where, uh, you know, um, uh, Kim Turner with police decided to make a final decision and say, oh, okay, yeah, you're on the road with us. <laughs> you're either going to get a contract or you're going to get your legs broken. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> that is some pirate fearlessness right there. Yeah. And then I can only imagine that the venues just got bigger after that, right? I mean, I, I would imagine somebody comes to see the police or they come to see Bob Seger and they're like, whatever that guy's doing, we they, that needs to be our guy now. Yeah, I think um, uh, KISS was really, the, the original upstaging clients were uh, local acts, Ario Speedwagon. Um, uh, I think that um, Skinner came up and that's one of the first things that upstaging actually toured with. Um, but the exposure that KISS tour uh, was uh, national. It was one of the three biggest tours out that year. Um, and then Seeger's uh, uh, fame quickly followed. Cheap Trick was another client that we took care of at that point, the police, Prince. Um, yeah, we had a lot of good clients. Right on. So you got to see the full progression of technology too, moving from park hands to moving lights to, to video and all that. Yeah, the, the, the very light uh, thing was scary um, in, in terms of once you saw that, you knew that you know, all the rest of it was just toast. Um, and I very quickly started uh, talking with uh, the very light fellas um, uh, about finding ways to provide trussing and custom packaging uh, for those kind of things to try to marry into that a little bit. Um, and uh, around that time is, is where my daughter was born and that created all sorts of pressure uh, in terms of my time and my brother and I's relationship at work. Um, and that created the window for me to be involved in television with Alan. 
and once in television, uh, and this is a niche thing again. So we had all this rock and roll technology, uh, but we also wanted to use very lights for our shows, which we could get. Uh, whereas if you're a touring thing, it was a different kind of thing. You'd have to take it for the whole time and it was limited. Right. Amount. Um, and so very quickly we were adapting all the rock and roll skills we had to the television industry for the first time. Um, and, uh, so that was a, a, a critical little window that opened up, uh, and they, two other things happened, um, uh, digital cameras, uh, yep. uh, were showed up. So now you could shoot down at exposures that would allow you to see light beams, which you had never been able to do before. Mm -hmm. Branton and our team uh, was doing that uh, on television. And then Bob Dickinson, of course, was out at Soul Train, just tearing it up uh, out there, doing the same thing, of uh, getting automated lighting and, and those beam displays and all that stuff uh, visible on TV, which before it hadn't been. I would imagine that the, the evolution of haze became a big thing too, because the haze used to just be toxic in a uh, yeah, arena absolutely yeah uh, the first cracked oil machines were quite a breakthrough um i don't remember who made them but uh we actually donnie crone and i actually got a hold of one and we took it apart uh you know down to the smallest detail to try to figure out what the hell was going on in there um <laughs> that, <laughs> could could uh, make it work so here you are uh, a roadie pirate who gets to sit out at front of house in the midst of 20, 30,000 screaming fans. And you get to like really feel the full impact of the concerts of legends like kiss and cheap trick and all that. And now you have to take a, not a, not a left turn, but a, a slight pivot to television where you don't get instant feedback, but you have to still create that same emotion and you have to be able to make your audience feel something. How, how did you know if you're doing it right or not? Uh, it looks good to you while you're doing it. Um, you see a lot of the early stuff that, that I did with Alan was on film. So that was even worse. Where you would get uh, these taps in the camera so you could see composition but there was really no way to gauge exposure uh, as to what was really going on, except for look for, uh, you know, blatant things burning in, in the background or, or, or whatever. There were some fundamental rules that, that Alan quickly got onto, and he'll tell you that this was because he worked with Diana Ross on an all-white stage uh, for a tour or two where he had to control where every single light went and how it bounced and uh, all those reflectivities and manage them meticulously. And that translated to getting control in a, a television environment very rapidly. And, and the style became that the feature performer basically is an island. And if you turn every light on in the rig, there's no light on the feature. Uh, yeah. And then you light that person with follow spots or footlight or, or whatever and control the portrait and the management of the feature meticulously within that uh, other environment that's created elsewhere. Man, you just kind of pointed out how spoiled we are to have instant feedback of the appearance of our shows on film. Like you didn't know what your show looked like for another, like you said, two weeks. You wouldn't know what anything looked like for quite a while. Yeah, you could get dailies in, in a feature situation, but yeah, you'd, you'd have to wait to do it. But we kind of learned quickly that uh, 
uh, 80 foot candles was a nice place to be <laughs> at that point um, it, it, with the film um, uh, in, in, in television I shoot much, much, much below that. But um, uh, for those years of, of shooting film with uh, Garth and the, the series of The Road uh, and a bunch of the things that uh, High Five did, um, uh, the Judds and Michael Bolton and on and on and on. That was all film, but it was the same DPs uh, usually, and, and we developed a system and it worked. Actually, that's a, a perfect segue into the next question I have for you. Let's say once you have Garth as one of your clients, he is world renowned for wanting to do mega stadium shows, followed by an acoustic set, followed by an arena stadium. Like that guy can do any venue he wants to and you have to help him do you have to help him create any you have to still maintain that same human interaction how do you how do you kind of set the the bar for that all the shows with garth uh that i had done starting and the first ones were with alan um in early 90s um were big uh, they were very big, and yeah. uh, some of them were the biggest shows ever. Te Texas Stadium was the most film ever developed in uh, the history of a shoot, <laughs> for example. Wow. Um, and it wasn't till uh, we went to the win with Garth in, uh, again, I'm going to say 10 years ago, uh, he had a... a Yep. A single man show where he would tell stories and he would play the songs related to the stories and the, and the songs were almost always James Taylor or, or um, Billy Joel or Bob Seger again. Um, uh, and he'd talk about how these things influenced him and he'd play that song and then he'd play the song that he wrote that that song inspired him to. And Garth's personality in those big shows is just really unique. You, you can be at the very last seat in that place and you feel like he's singing directly to you. He's so gregarious and big and his gestures are huge. And I was concerned about how that was gonna translate uh, onto close-up television for CBS uh, when we did the win that you know it's just gonna look overdone. Uh, and that's not what happened at all. It was just magical. He has a tremendously unique talent to understand who he's playing to, and he adapts. Uh, we don't adapt. He adapts to it. That's just magic. So in the giant stadium shows, it sounds like you have to amplify that. But then in the in the smaller venues, you just have to kind of stay out of the way and make sure that people can see them. Well, the, the, the iMag, that's such a part of what we do now, right? So kind of brings you into his, you know, eye-to-eye -eye personal environment. Uh, what I try to do at the big shows is to include everybody. And I do that usually by, first of all, establishing the historical value of where you're at. If you're at Yankee Stadium, you know it's Yankee Stadium. You can see it all around you glowing. Um, and then light everything, all the people from the perimeter, as opposed to okay. in their face, light them from the perimeter. It's coming across their shoulders or down their backs. So they see the people immediately in front of them fully engaged in the show. They're, the, the light cues are changing on them while um, 
while the music's going on. Everybody becomes inclusive. And now it's a show about 70,000 people and not Garth playing to 70,000 people. Oh, that's a, that's a good philosophy there. It is about everybody in the room. It, it really, uh, that's it, cool. it, it's been effective for me. I get in trouble sometimes. Dave Butzler is Garth's uh, touring guy forever. And uh, I obviously interface with him tremendously in terms of, you know, how we engage all this stuff. He, he's very fond of telling me, boy, it's real pretty, Bob, but I can't see anybody. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and not until everybody's fully in there and engaged and then you kind of feel the color and things on them as opposed to lighting their faces up and, and that whole thing. Do you, do you kind of understand how it works or how I think it works? That's cool. I know that you're just one member of the Garth team. He has multiple designers when he's doing different things, correct? Uh, Dave Butzler is his lighting designer and uh, lead director for uh, forever. Got uh, it. In terms of the large scale television thing, uh, I think I've been involved with every show except for two. Um, uh, Central Park in Ireland, uh, which I think Woodruff did. Okay. Um, uh, and then the stuff that he's doing now in Nashville, uh, they do uh, in his studio and, and try to do that local. The, the coronavirus has certainly had an impact on, the, on that kind of stuff as well. Man, that's got to be tough to be in, a, in an isolated basement and still try and emote and send out those emotions and all that all that the, the, the couple little shows that he's done with with um, Trisha were just magical. Again, you just you just feel like he's you're right there with him, and then he's talking right to you, and uh, it's, he's got a magic about him. And Trisha does as well. I would imagine that Garth and yourself both have something very similar in the fact that you just have to keep reinventing yourself or keep coming up with new ways to be creative. After, I mean, forty. 40 some odd years in the industry and the, the, you have to rely on technology. You have to rely on new inspirations. How do you stay fresh and relevant? I think that um, for me, it's just about getting better. I don't think that there is anything um, that maturity in this industry is a negative. I, I think that the more you see, the more you do, um, uh, makes you better. You've learned more things. You've encountered different ways of doing things. Uh, Kevin Lawson's not available. So you have a new kid come in uh, who's got a different way of, of programming or a different uh, combination that he wants to show you. Uh, new technologies come out and you get to embrace and uh, bring those in. And um, I, I'm just as passionate about it now. I mean, uh, am I going to stay up, uh, you know, all night, uh, five, six days in a row? No, but I, I never really would anyway. So <laughs> uh, th that part of it, I guess, is, is maybe a, a little bit more difficult to manage. But um, uh, given the previs capabilities that, that we now have, uh, you can do that stuff in a warm, controlled environment, most of it. Sounds like you're very open to outside influences from other designers, directors, and even programmers. I, I'd like to uh, watch and, and, and uh, learn and uh, embrace uh, everywhere we can, yeah. Do you still go to shows uh, pre-pandemic? Uh, pre-pandemic, yes. 
You're a concert goer. Yeah, and and uh, I've been lucky in that I've had series uh, soundstage for PBS. I guess is the most um, uh, prominent one where just a bevy of acts, uh, different one or two a week uh, coming in where you're exposed to uh, different people, different ideas. And, and uh, I, I usually get to determine how much of their um, live concert impacts what we're doing. But I usually go in with uh, open arms to, to uh, try to engage as much of that as possible. Because I think if Tyler Roach is going to write five cues for me, or you've got a touring LD that's been with him for 20 years that could give you a hundred, uh, maybe the hundreds a better way to go at that time. Right on. Sounds like you got a nice sampler pack. You get to see all the up and comers and then you get to see right. who, which shows you would actually pay to go see. Right. Cool. And then also you get a little bit of all the different people coming in to kind of convince you what, what needs to look good for their artist. Right. That's cool. That's uh, the and Chicago. The full is, yeah, Chicago's got uh, you know access to everything in, in the world in terms of uh, uh, art and concerts and events. All right. So when you're taking in all those outside and external influences, do you still have a a Bob Peterson style? Is there something that is uniquely Bob Peterson? I like to think of it as impressionistic. Uh, truly, um, uh, the and and this happened down at the Ryman from doing a couple series down there is the cowboy hats and the nightmare that they created uh, forced us to quickly um, uh, find ways to solve that problem. And uh, Monica Rose pulled out some Orion single cell Sykes and we put them down underneath. Uh, a cowboy hat on either side. And then I immediately saw that Degas glow uh, that happens uh, from those because you're running them at points. And if you don't have the gel just right, it's just this warm, wonderful underlight, uh, exactly like those Degas uh, portraits. Um, uh, and so th that's a thing that always appealed to me. And then the management of layers and level so that, uh, you know, things are deeply out of focus as you work your way back and, and you have to kind of wrap your head around what you want that to look like as opposed to what it actually does look like. So impressionistic is a, is a fancy phrase that I've convinced myself I uh, follow. I do love that when the, the foreground is perfectly crisp and then the, each subsequent layer is farther out of focus. It definitely brings the eye where it belongs. Yeah, and, and it's interesting how the NFL is doing that now. And I wonder if it was as brilliant as someone saying, well, all we're seeing is empty seats back behind these guys. Why don't we throw all that out of focus? Uh, now, to be a, the guy following those people around with a prime lens, and, and uh, man, that's a hard job. But uh, I've really enjoyed it, uh, seeing it in the last few weeks. That is impressive. That's, uh, that's how we adapt. That's how we change. Right. We gotta, we gotta be prepared for that stuff. You right. know, you used to want to see every single person in the audience. You needed everything crystal clear, but when there's nobody out there, you don't want to see empty right. seats. Right. I know that we've tried every other thing. We tried putting stuffed animals out there. We tried putting monitors cardboard, in yeah, the seats yeah. and then cardboard cutouts, video walls, monitors, light beams, 
there's nothing like having 80,000 people sitting in seats. There's, there's magic there. Speaking of large venues, you've done your fair share of shows. I'm thinking of things. uh, I'm talking about inaugurations. I'm talking about Yankee stadiums. Uh, That's gotta be so thrilling. You have to be able to really amplify that human connection so far. I mean, you can't, you can't even ignore the person in the last seat. Do you use lighting to, to make that connection? Yeah, without, without a question. Again, tr- you try to establish the perimeter of the space you're in so people can tell they're <laughs> enclosed in that space. Uh, and then uh, almost always uh, raking light. Um, uh, so it's, you know, it's just not uh, jamming you. Um, uh, so that you, you know you're there, you feel you're a part of it. You can definitely tell the people you're with are, are there. Um, it, it, it's engagement as opposed to, um, you know, being uh, spotted with, uh, with a spotlight. You're trying to get out of the cage. <laughs> so we are almost out of time, but I have to know what it was like to do both of Obama's inaugurations. Grant Park uh, is, is still resonates with me, and it, it, it from a very deep level. Some of my first young uh, adolescent memories are Grant Park um, in flames during the 1968 riots, um, and we lived in Chicago, and that was right there, and, and Mayor Daley and all that. And this is the exact same location uh, where all that stuff took place. The history of what we were doing was uh, not lost on me for a moment. I'm, I'm a student of, of history and Lincoln and all of that. And um, that, was a, that was a struggle. That, so the grouchy old uh, roadie, as you said, uh, he presented himself quite a few times uh, that week in details like uh, just a lighting array on uh, some backlight towers and the scaffold not wanting to line up with the way the hooks would go. So, you know, there's four lights over here and three over here kind of thing. And I'm like, this is going to be on the front page of every newspaper in the entire world in two days. Yep. Uh, I don't care what mm-hmm. you got to do, hang another pipe underneath this, whatever. And, and the meticulousness of those details. But we were, uh, I was lucky with a couple of things. One is because just the way we had to place the towers, uh, it spread the backlight out a little bit and it took his ears and flattened them out because of the angle. Perfect. Where the, the light he needs that. And then uh, the night before, uh, they put up two major plexiglass slabs facing the big buildings so that if anybody tried to sight a high-powered rifle during the night, they would capture it. They'd know it had happened. Uh, they'd know where it came from, et cetera, et cetera. So they were just going to put that up for the night. In the morning, they said, and, and we came to find out that they were concerned about the guys from Michigan and the guys from Kentucky not wanting there to actually ever have a uh, uh, person of color accept the presidency of the United States. So there was imminent threat um, uh, to him and they refused to take the plexiglass down. And this is uh, right in the primary uh, key and fill of of what I'm gonna do with him. And 
much negotiation, but we were able to put out footlight uh, to solve that problem, which I wanted anyway, but it, it was unheard of. You can't have any footlight out here. Oh, no, that's never done. And so we put out a bunch of it facing both directions and there's a glow, that same glow, uh, to those photographs that you will see that uh, uh, I think was unique uh, in terms of historical photography of that time. That glow that, that presented itself in all the photos was, uh, was a Bob Peterson design there. It was a problem solve, uh, yeah. a quick one, uh, and uh, by and this is no small thing either. The, there was more international press there that night than anything that had taken place in the United States. All in a tent, a white tent, all with soft lights of their own. So there's like this uh, 110 by 30 foot tall soft light, you know, in the deep background in front of him as well from from all those sources. That's amazing. It, it, just, it just all kind of fell together. Yeah. It makes me feel good to know that that was treated with all the reverence and, uh, and respect that it was due. Yeah. We all knew that uh, there was something special happening. Right on. Well, thank you so much. I'm, uh, I'm really happy to kind of have a chance to soak up some of the unique philosophies and knowledge of Bob Peterson. You've, You've been at this for many, many years, and uh, it's good to see that you're still at it. Uh, yeah, I don't, um, I don't plan on stopping. I, I think I got a few, uh, few miles left. That is actually one of the hard things. Uh, a separate note is, uh, my wife works for United Airlines, and we've designed our life around two first uh, shows uh, and travel, uh, or just travel. Um, uh, as uh, what we do with, with our time and to be trapped uh, from any kind of travel work or, or personal uh, has been one of the hardest things to face in, the, uh, in these last it's, few months. It's tough. I don't, I didn't realize how addicted I had become to that sort of human interaction. Uh, just being in, being out at front of house and being in a room with, thousands of like-minded people willing to accept the same message, the same music and just be dancing to the same groove. I, it's hard to, it's hard to get those to, to suffer those withdrawals. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bob. I appreciate your time. You take care of yourself.